Okay, thanks for stopping by, Brian, for Liberty. I hope you will take a second to subscribe to the channel. I'm uh, going to be going over a few different things today. Um, I'm a small channel, as you can obviously see, so I will be discussing coronavirus on a pretty regular basis here, just kind of giving my spin on it. As a libertarian, uh, my take on this is probably going to be a little bit different, and I think we're as we get in, getting closer to recognizing that in our major metropolitan areas and our areas like New York that has hopefully seeing a fall in hospitalization rates continue and a flattening of the curve. Uh, we have to start talking about the real economic impacts here, and we have to start talking about the real impacts on our day-to-day -day lives as Americans uh, when things finally do start returning to normal. I'm also going to take a minute to talk about YouTube. We're going to talk about the economy. We're going to talk about liberty, and we're going to start it off with uh, YouTube and some criticism of Google. I have done this before, and I'm going to do it again. Um, I am very unhappy with the fact that they are demonetizing some of these YouTube channels, that you are not allowed to talk about coronavirus. Uh, essentially under penalty of losing your income that you're generating uh, through your channel. And I think that's incredibly hypocritical. When you search for coronavirus on Google, uh, the first results that pop up are going to be Fox, CNN, uh, CBS, you know, all these different major media channels. I've been watching the news just like the rest of you. And at the end of the day, all I can tell you is that I have not seen a single brought to you without commercial interruption um, coronavirus story or coverage okay these guys are still racking in racking up the money they're still selling ad space and at the end at the bottom line on this is they are making way more money because they have a literally a captive audience people on stay-at-home orders glued to the television and seeking out this um information regarding coronavirus and of course and i don't blame them as a as as businesses make the money if you're going to sell the ad time sell the ad time does it sound cold does it sound callous maybe but hey you've got to pay people not just your wealthy on-screen personalities but you've got people to pay people on payroll i'm sure that there are people working a ton of overtime so sell the ads it's okay i'm not i'm not angry at the broadcast at the networks what i'm angry at is a company like google saying who owns youtube saying we're going to demonetize channels that discuss coronavirus while at the same time having that's a huge double standard right let your creators make money just like anybody else the unfortunate reality is we're dealing with coronavirus you're not saving any lives you're not doing bettering anybody's life because you are demonetizing channels and some People generate some income off of this, but not a lot. You know, what about the guy who does YouTube as kind of a secondary thing? You're, all I'm saying is, is it's very hypocritical, and I think it's a bad move on YouTube's part. It's a bad move on Google's part, and, and I, I just don't like it, and I'm not a fan. So, um, again, the, the big broadcasters are able to make money. Um, nobody's telling them that they can't follow their business model just because there's a crisis. I don't think it's fair to say that YouTube creators can't follow their business model anymore. So... I want to talk about coronavirus a little bit. A um, couple of things that I've been thinking about lately, and, and boy, this morning I was really spun up, and I, I kind of calmed myself down. I was going to get on here and just kind of rail against the whole uh, government response to this thing. I was, I was pretty fired up. But as I talked my way through it, um, cooler heads prevailed. And I think that there's a, there's a, a lot of – I've talked about this, and I've mentioned this before. Obviously, I'm not an epidemiologist. Obviously, I'm not a virologist. I'm not an expert on this particular – topic and so it's wrong for me to try and render some form of expert opinion on how the government should have responded to this based on the fact that I don't know enough about the spread of this disease um, how transmittable it is and those kinds of things to say well you know this is a gross overreaction or whatever the case may be 
However, I can say I, I can look at statistics and I can look at the CDC's website and I can look at a couple of different things and I could say, well, I look at the flu and, you know, comparing this to the flu may not be, you know, I understand there's a timeline issue and that's what the whole flattening the curve thing was about. But in the United States from October through April, so what do you got? October, November, December, January, February, March, April. It's a seven month period. Okay, this, it's not like the flu gets spread out over 18 months, right? This is a, we have a seven month period from October to April where 39 to 56 million people will get the flu. I'm looking at the stats over here on the CDC website. There'll be a 18 to 26 million visits, um, medical visits, and 400 to 740,000 hospitalizations. Okay, and we'll see in that seven-month period, 24,000 to 62,000 deaths. That's over a seven-month period. And so what we're talking about when we talk about coronavirus and trying to flatten the curve, first and foremost, we don't have vaccines and we don't have any kind of immunity to coronavirus. So you could take that 39 to 56, and I would assume, again, not being any kind of an expert, that you're going to see three to four times that 50%, 60% of the population would probably end up um, – having a reaction or catching coronavirus maybe higher maybe 70 percent 200 million people so and th then you look at the hospitalization rates and the death rates and all those things and it is higher than the flu so we got to look at it and say it was appropriate for us to take some action here it was appropriate for us to get the word out and make sure that we're doing things seriously but at what cost and this is where things get very very difficult to discuss because we are talking about lives. We are talking about people in the hospital. We're talking about people losing loved ones. This is dangerous. This is, it, it's unprecedented since what, 1918, the Spanish flu. This is, this is the, that's the comparison that we're getting on this. So it's really hard to say what the government should have or should not have done, but it looks to me like the actions that we've taken have flattened the curve and I guess my question is, is at what cost and to what level should we have strove to flatten the curve? And this is where the conversation gets difficult. We have a great amount of unused capacity when it comes to our medical, um, our medical capabilities, our healthcare infrastructure. We have a great deal of unutilized capacity in our healthcare infrastructure right now. Yeah, I know we got, we're having the Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all and, and the U.S. healthcare system is terrible. And, and I know that you want to, you know, a lot of you out there want to believe that. But the bottom line is we have a vast amount of unused capacity in our healthcare system right now. We sent the USNS Comfort to New York Harbor to take on patients to free up capacity there. And I think that at the end they ended up seeing 20 patients. Of the thousands of beds that are available on that, on that ship, they saw 20 patients. In Seattle, we set up a massive field hospital. And when we talk about unutilized capacity, I'm not just talking about the stuff that's the day-to-day -day regular healthcare infrastructure that we have in this country. We have a massive healthcare infrastructure available to us through this Army field hospital that was set up in Seattle. I can't remember exactly how many patients it was capable of seeing. It didn't see any. They, they, tore, they took it down. Seattle never hit to a capacity level where they had to use this other this other these other methodologies and I'm sorry you're hearing my dog bark in the background he probably thinks I'm under some form of imminent threat so um, but you you hear these things you that 
the USNS Comfort, we didn't have to use that. You, this field hospital in Seattle, we didn't have to use that. And that's an Army field hospital. We could break that down and set that up in San Francisco. We could break that down and set it up in Louisiana. We can break that, you know, and we, we're capable of putting out several of these things. You know, the Army Corps of Engineers has a great deal of capacity outside of just our regular healthcare capacity. My point is, we have fundamentally destroyed the U.S. economy. We're not talking about that yet. I've touched on it multiple times. I'm going to touch on it again here. But we have fundamentally destroyed the U.S. economy by going into a complete shutdown. And it's a difficult conversation to have, but I feel that we should have, while some measures should have been taken, while some things should have been put in place to ensure public safety, they should have been done within a structure that already existed. I think we should have, perhaps instead of closing all these businesses down, your bars, your restaurants, all these service industries that are, were deemed non-essential, can we lower capacity? Can we work with restaurant owners and say, listen, we're, we, we have two options here. We could shut down to flatten the curve, or we can reduce capacity. And we can say, you know, go to 70% of what your, 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 your stated capacity is. You know, if you have a fire marshal capacity of, you know, 200 people, you can now have 140. That's your max capacity. Or I want you to take, take out half of the tables in your restaurant, take out half of your bar stools, and you, we can, we'll do some inspections and we'll check these things out, but we're going to allow you to continue to do, you have to be allowed to continue to do business, but we are going to take these steps. Let's get, let's start dispensing supplies, hand sanitizer, things of that nature to these businesses as, as, a, as part of the government intervention into the market. If you feel like the government was where this intervention needed to take place, let's get, let's make sure these places are properly equipped. Let's get some training out to the staff to make sure that they're taking extra steps in terms of uh, making sure that things are, are safe regarding health care. And there's Buddy again. Jeez, Lou, buddy. Come on, give me a break here. I'm trying to do a show. All right, I, I muted my mic and gave him a quick shout there. So we'll see if that, uh, see if that calms him down. Anyway, um, so at the end of the day, th were there steps we could take in to increase public safety while recognizing that we are going to put our healthcare system under some significant stress. And again, I know this is a difficult topic, and I know that I'll probably get backlash when it comes to frontline healthcare workers, but here in Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic has just announced they're gonna be furloughing thousands of people because of all the non-essential uh, stuff that's being put off. And I know that we're bringing in medical uh, personnel from other areas of the country that aren't being as impacted as New York right now, um, to to reinforce them, and I can't imagine the difficult circumstances that they must be working under. But again, there are other considerations here that I think that we have kind of glossed over, and we have fundamentally destroyed the U.S. economy. I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say we took an – I want everybody to just think back to 2008, and think about how afraid you were of what was going on in 2008 in the economy. The stock market's crashing. The housing market is falling apart. And I want you to think about how huge of a global economic disaster that was. Okay? We've already done more from an economic stimulus perspective and from Federal Reserve actions. We have already done more than we did during the 2008 financial crisis. The, the, take that and put that into perspective. 
This is just starting. We have not really started focusing on the economic side of things. We haven't even reopened the country yet to know how bad this is going to be once we try and start getting things back to normal. And we've already taken more economic, both fiscal and monetary. We've done more than we did in 2008 already. So when I say that we fundamentally destroyed the U.S. economy, what I'm saying is, is the government and the Federal Reserve are both looking at this and taking actions much more drastic than they did during the 2008 financial crisis, and we know how bad that was. So the steps that we've taken are going to have a massive economic impact, and they're going to be ripples throughout the economy for years to come. We were, I, I'm going to say this again. I've said it in my last three videos, but I'm going to say it again. We were $23 trillion in debt before this started. We had just signed another bill saying that we were going to add another trillion dollars to the debt. That's $24 trillion. We spent another $2 trillion in stimulus, $26 trillion. Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, the word is, are already working on the next stimulus bill. Nancy Pelosi wants $2 trillion. Donald Trump is reportedly, his number's more close to uh, about a trillion dollars. That's $27 trillion plus the falling tax revenue plus certainly more stimulus and more Federal Reserve action through the course of the year as the economic impact of this and the ripple effect through the economy is, is really felt. And that's assuming we try and start getting things back to normal in May. So this complete shutdown, the way we completely shut down the economy, this is real too, okay? This isn't just about greed, okay? This isn't just about big businesses losing money. You know how many startup businesses never got to open their doors? How many people probably invested their life savings in chasing their dream and never got to open their doors? I can tell you, I live in a very small rural area, and I can tell you I know of one person at least who invested a significant amount of money and took a big risk in, in the hopes of opening a business that was going to be very much focused on springtime activities in an area that gets cold, and she's not even, she, her door's not going to open. That business isn't going to open because of this. That's a, that's a person's dream. That's a person's life savings. That's gone. Okay. That's a real impact. Okay. We can't be insensitive to those things either. You know, I've got a, a small bar that I like to go to up the road here that is closed. There's a bartender who works there. There's a waitress who works there. There's a family that runs that bar that doesn't have their income anymore. That's real too. Those things are real as well. And we've got to balance our decision-making moving forward, and we've got to think about those things because they're real and they're going to stay with us. And I personally believe that with our health care system in the United States, on our, the infrastructure that we have and the capabilities that we have, that we could have taken steps to safeguard public, you know, to provide safety for the public, to safeguard you know, human life and to flatten the curve, but I don't know that we needed to push things as far as we did. We probably should have allowed our healthcare system to be stressed a little bit more than we did and allow business to continue to function because the, the post-mortem on the coronavirus uh, epidemic, the pandemic, is going to be the economic disaster that we left in its wake, okay? And that's only one part. There is a second part of this that I don't think is going to get anywhere near enough attention, and that is the absolute ease in which our government was able to tell Americans, stay at home, close all these businesses, and how quickly we were obedient and how quickly we lined up and how quickly we did that. Again, the impact 
of the coronavirus and the lives that are going to be lost is a tragedy. It is. All the things that are going to ripple out from this, those are real considerations as well. If we are winning, if we're starting to get ahead of the curve, we have to start thinking about how many more sacrifices we need to make to beat. How many more crises are we going to create? How many more tragedies are we going to create to stop this tragedy from happening? Okay. We, can we lessen the impact on the economic side? Is there something we can do on the liberty side to make sure that we never end up in a situation where right now every single American under a stay-at-home order, every single non-essential business that's been forced to close has no recourse? There's nobody looking out for these people. There's nobody looking out for the American people in protecting civil liberties. There's nobody looking out for these businesses and protecting their rights to pursue their dreams and to earn an income and to provide for their families. Nobody's looking out for that. We don't have anything in place in the event of this kind of a crisis, in the event of this kind of an emergency that allows us to push back. And that is dangerous in and of itself because you don't want a desperate population locked in their homes considering severe actions, right? And I'm not going to go and speculate on what people may be thinking or what people may be considering, but boredom is a terrible thing. Boredom and desperation, not only am I trapped in my house, but I've lost my job. Not only am I trapped in my house, but I've lost my life savings. Not only am I trapped in my house, but I've lost my business. People are going to be angry, and there's going to be a backlash from this. And we need to start thinking about, and we need to start being able to answer that question. Hey, did you do the right thing? What gives you the right? I have fundamentally lost my right to peacefully assemble. That's a constitutionally guaranteed right. The governor can't override the Constitution of the United States. He doesn't have that authority. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So where does he derive his authority to say, I can't peacefully assemble? So we're going to look at this from a liberty perspective, and we're going to say, okay, we have to take steps. If I'm going to agree that government has a role to play and that it's okay for government to say we're going to take steps to protect public safety, that's fine. You also have a – your number one priority as, as the government is to protect my liberty. That's your top priority, and everything else has to work off of that. We have no structure in place, nothing nothing – in the way in if we could declare an emergency if we can declare a crisis then i can now i can just take away your freedoms and and what's my recourse to that how do i fight back to that as an individual citizen so that's that's a real issue that we have to address that's a real question that needs to be answered folks because what's the next crisis what what to what level of fear will we accept Sent, essentially just giving up all of our liberties and giving up all of our freedoms. When, at what point do we say, no, yeah, no I, I'm sorry. I, I get to draw a line in the sand here, and I get to say that this does not rise anywhere near the, the level of the action that you're taking. That my, yes, my liberty is more important than this thing. And that may not sound... That may sound cold. I, I told you some of these conversations are difficult in the face of, an, of a health crisis, but the bottom line is there's still questions that need to be answered. Okay, We have to talk about liberty. We have to talk about freedom because these are, these are the founding, foundational principles of our nation. This is, this is what makes our republic what it is. And if we're so willing to set those freedoms aside just to be safe, well, we know. 
we know what Thomas Jefferson said, those who would sacrifice liberties for safety and security will end up with neither. We know that. We know that to be true. History has taught us time and time again that in time of crisis is when tyrannical governments rise to power. If you're a Democrat who said that Trump is literally Hitler, this should terrify you, right? You should be insanely afraid of what's happening right now. And, and honestly, you should be afraid of how easy it was to pacify the American people and force them to go home. That's, that to me is something that we definitely need to be discussing. I think there needs to be. And I'm in Wisconsin, and I don't know where you all are tuning in from, but wherever you're listening from, what I would tell you is this. You need to start getting on the phone with your legislature right now and start demanding that a structure be put into place to protect your liberties in the event of a crisis. Right now, there should be a joint panel of Republicans and Democrats in the state of Wisconsin who are examining Governor Evers' moves, who are looking at the crisis, who are seeing what's going on, who can look at this as from a from an outside perspective and say, okay, enough. We, we've gone far enough. And Governor Evers should have to sit down before a panel when this is all over and answer for what he's done. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that as if he's done something wrong. What I'm saying is my constitutional rights were taken away and the governor should have to sit down and explain why that was necessary. We should be able to look at this outside of the realm of a crisis Sitting, setting everything aside as we move past this and we start returning to, to whatever normal is going to look like when this is all over, we need to sit down and be able to look at this. And it needs to be a structure that exists outside of left, right, partisan bickering. So it, should, it really needs to be something that exists already. So that when we go into the next crisis, we have a, a tool, we have something in place to, to safeguard our, our liberties because it was too easy. And I think there's going to be an incredible lack of accountability when this is over. We have, hopefully, we've saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And you can't put a price on that. You really can't. But there is a price that's going to be paid. There is going to be economic consequences that are going to be with us for a long, long time. And there is a question of U.S., of, of our, as American citizens, there is a question of, are we a free people? Have we just demonstrated that we're not a free people anymore? It was this the last vestige, the last, the last step to saying, okay, let's drop the charade. We are not free people anymore. We don't believe in liberty anymore. That's dangerous. That's, and that should terrify you. That should be as scary to you as this virus is. So I want to thank everybody for stopping by. I hope you stuck around. Um, hope there's a bunch of you still watching. I think kind of the best stuff here came at the end. I'll put the net in my description. Um, but I hope you'll take a second to subscribe to the channel. Share this video if you think the message is important. Uh, I will try and bring you a video every day. I will be back tomorrow. And uh, thanks very much. And we will see you folks next time.